Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast. I'm Dan, the fitness man. You guys got a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts. This is an elk hunting specific podcast with a twist. We like the fitness and we like the year round preparation it takes to hone your skills and be successful year in, year out on public land. Elk hunting has changed my life. It's made it for the better. I have that big why and I get up early, I train, I spend time with my family, I put that phone down and engage, I plan trips throughout the year for them, but come fall, I'm gone, living the dream, chasing elk, chasing bugles, it's a thing of beauty. And you don't have to be fit to hunt elk, but you will have, I would say, arguably more enjoyment while doing it, and possibly see more places and have more opportunity. Today we are recording with Rusty Smith from Southeast Idaho, Rusty's a cool dude. He, We're gonna give you a little background on this guy just so you guys know. He is like a fifth generation houndsman. So we're gonna cover mountain lions, something that I wanna do more. I've done it once and it was awesome. I just love predator hunting and the way that Idaho's managing their, their elk herds in my opinion. Predator hunting is so critical for the success of the future elk herds. Uh, so he's a great dude. He grew up on a cattle ranch in Southeast Idaho and the whole thing was ran by his grandfather and father. So he comes from blue collar grassroots. Uh, the dude went to Utah State University. I mean, he lives just by the border of Utah. And, you know, we talk about on the podcast kind of his career evolution, and he's got a really unique angle on 
working throughout the year so he can elk hunt as much as he wants. And he's quite the outdoorsman. He's been published in Western Hunter Magazine. He's got a sweet YouTube channel. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Uh, he just started so, you know, publishing videos, and they're really interesting. Uh, he's just a great family man and a solid dude. He's been married for over 19 years, and he's got kids. He's just a, he's just a really relatable dude, and that's who we like to bring on this podcast. Let's talk about uh, a little bit of business, and then let's get into the podcast. So I'm pretty stoked on... Just got back from the ATA show, guys, and I met with some companies that, you know, it's funny. You 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 shoot out these emails or messages, and it seems like you get nowhere until you get face-to-face with these people, and they really understand what the Elk Shape Camps are doing. We've had some companies really step up. So seven locations in 2020. The first one's about to start, and we want them all to sell out. And if we do that, there'll be 140 athletes that we'll get to touch this year and help mold their off-season preparation and hopefully create more personal development and obviously help them kill more elk or kill their first elk. We worked with Matthews. We got a deal. So somebody, one athlete is going to win a brand new Matthews VXR bow of their choice. So everyone's name gets entered in that comes to an elk-shaped camp. And we worked with Lakewood, and they make awesome, ridiculously awesome bow cases. They're going to create a custom Matthews bow case for that bow. So thank you, Lakewood. Then we have Baku e-bikes. These dudes are stepping up, and they're giving away an e-bike. Not only do I have one, and I think it's the best e-bike on the market, hands down. It's built for hunting specifically, but these dudes are hardcore hunters. They get us. And these bikes are not cheap, and someone's going to have a bike delivered to their doorstep because they attended Elk Shape Camp. That is ridiculous. Wilderness Athlete is also throwing in product samples as well as a couple of product packages. Everyone's getting a lid. That's really exciting. Everybody from Onyx Hunt is getting a premier membership to the state of their choice. And if you already have a premier membership, you're just going to pick another state. Uh, That's super exciting. We have a bunch of more sponsorship type stuff that I won't bore you with, but uh, just know that somebody's walking away with a brand new Razer 4000 rangefinder from Vortex Optics at every camp. And we have a bunch of other sponsors kicking in prizes. I want everyone who comes to Elk Shape to feel like they were spoiled. They got hookups on all gear. They got great discounts. And then obviously the information and the knowledge from not only you know, what I can present, but my team of subject matter experts were super stoked. Uh, Redmond, Oregon is coming up after the Spokane one, and that thing needs a few more spots. And so the two discount codes that I can offer right now are as follows. If you're a firefighter, law enforcement, active military, use the discount code first responder, all one word, save $150 off registration. Obviously being a former firefighter, I got a little little place in my heart for what you all do uh, for our communities and I just appreciate your service and I just wanted to give back. If you're not a first responder but you're looking for a discount code, Lakewood, because they're giving away that sick bow case, we're going to do Lakewood 50. So that's one word, Lakewood 50, L-A-K-E-W-O-O-D-5-0 and that'll get you $50 off registration on any of our camps. Again, we're going to Spokane, Redmond, Oregon, Bernie, Texas, Roanoke, Texas, which is at Cinnamon Creek Ranch, and we're doing a BHA Pint Night Storytelling with Dirk and myself. That's going to be a really cool venue. Then we're migrating over to La Crosse, Wisconsin, finally gets back to Wisconsin. We're going to do a camp at La Crosse Archery, 
And then we're going to move over to Denver, Colorado. Aaron Snyder is helping out with that one and Phil Mendoza. I'm really excited about that. And then we're going to finish strong at Fort Vancouver CrossFit and Archery World in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, Dirk's helping me out with that one. So people are always asking, well, who's going to be at what? I'll just make it simple. We have Joel Turner doing shot IQ and elk calling instruction at the Spokane camp and the, and the Vancouver, Washington one. We have Jason Phelps traveling with me to Wisconsin through the Wisconsin camp. And then Dirk's coming to the rest of the camps. Ryan Lampers is coming to the Spokane and the Wisconsin one. And Aaron Snyder is coming to the Denver one. Jeff Bynum, my financial coach, is coming to all of them because I believe in financial freedom. And I am going to pay all my debt off before I'm 40. I'm 38. I can't wait to do that podcast and break down every step. I'm very transparent on this podcast, and I want you guys to conquer debt as well so you can have an awesome hunt budget, so you can basically bless other people. So the more that you crank down on your debt, the more that you can bless people, and that is a great place to be. Now, let's get to the podcast. Um, I will say that we have the new lids in and the 90 Days to Freedom. We've been selling quite a bit of those. I'd like to see more and more people adopt a home gym and I created a program for that. So if you're interested, check that out. And that's what I got. Let's get to the podcast and thanks for listening. Here we go. So <laughs> thanks for taking the time to, to chat. We'll go right into it, man. Like uh, you're sure. out of Preston, Idaho. Is that where you're from? Yep, that's correct. I've never been there, man. I've driven near there on I-15, but I'm pretty sure I have an idea you're Southeast Idaho. Yeah. If, uh, if you're familiar at all with like Bear Lake, we're kind of in that same little southeast corner as Bear Lake. Yep. I mean, just minutes away from Utah, right? Yeah, it's uh, I can be the Utah border in about 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, right on. I can be to the Idaho border in Spokane in about 15 <clears throat> minutes. So, Oh, right on. I get it. I get it. Well, dude, today I want to bring you on because you represent exactly what I'm looking for. You come from a long line of hunters just passed on from generation to generation we obviously both want to keep that going in both our you know families and I just think that it's cool to talk to somebody who's just kind of pretty hardcore but has a real job and finds a way to balance family and work and hunting hard so I guess let's just give you the old opportunity to introduce us to those that don't know you yeah you bet yeah uh Rusty Smith I I literally grew up on a cattle ranch here in southeast idaho 10 minutes from where i live today um so grew up you know bucking hay hauling pipe doing all those fun things you get to do on a on a ranch and a farm growing up had a father and a grandfather that lived right next door to us that introduced us into hunting at a super super early age hunting trapping fishing you name it um and then i've stuck around these parts i love where i Love, absolutely loved where I grew up, so I've stayed near here. Uh, I I currently have uh, am married, been married about 19 years. My wife is from here as well, and uh, we got two kids, uh, a 14 year old boy. It's been a blast to introduce him to the hunting world, and a nine year old girl that will be uh, hunting here shortly. Yeah. So, in, is and, Idaho uh, one of those states you have to wait till you're 12? Um, it's 10 now. It used to be 12. It was 12 when I was a kid. And now as long as uh, they've passed hunter's education, uh, they can start hunting at 10. Noted. That's awesome. Yeah, I took hunter safety when I was 10 in Washington. And uh, pretty glad I did, honestly, like just at a young age and, and then experienced, uh, you know, some pretty good success early on, which really got me excited about it. Uh, sounds like you had a similar deal when you were growing up. 
Yeah, very, very similar. Um, one of those deals where I had an opportunity to go hunting with dad and grandpa all the time before I was old enough to hunt. And so it was one of those things where I was just chomping at the bit by the time I turned 12 years old and was able to actually have my own tag, you know, in my pocket. Um, and that's what's been fun with my boy. He started hunting at 10 and, uh, here he is 14 and, and I'm jealous of him. He's had an opportunity to, he's harvested, gosh, four mule deer, uh, bucks, nice bucks, whitetail bucks, several elk, a mountain lion. And, uh, I'm trying to make sure he realizes, uh, what an opportunity he's had at a young age already. Yeah, definitely. But he, he'll realize that one day, maybe not now, Sure. but when it's his turn, to bring his boy up he'll be like man my dad did it right and obviously your father grandfather did it right which is really what it's all about um i want to talk about your job because for listeners i always yeah. send like an intake form to anyone i'm bringing on just so i kind of have some baseline background and i love that you took the time to kind of write some stuff here you work in sales a handful yeah. of months out of the year and then you have the fall off which is like just speaks to volumes of your prioritization of hunting. It's really important to you. You need that fall off. So what do you, tell us about your like quote unquote job, like what you do there. Yeah, it's uh it's been an amazing experience to to give you a little background to how I kind of got into this job to explain what it is. I I graduated uh, with a couple of college degrees, business management, human resource management, and I kind of went into that world. I worked as a project manager at uh uh, for corporations for 13 years. Um, so working for the man for 13 years and I, I started to get a little bit burned out on it, uh, on call, you know, 24 seven. Um, most of the time I was having to be a weekend warrior for hunting. Um, you know, you'd have two to three weeks vacation at these corporations and you'd pile those vacation days up for fall and, and do four day weekends to hunt, et cetera. And I was kind of limited, kind of limited to hunting, you know, my Idaho general deer hunt, my, uh, elk hunt, get a few days of chasing, uh, mountain lions, um, with the family in the winter. And that was about it. And way later in life, at 38 years old, I took the jump and switched over to working for a, uh, security company that we do alarm systems, security systems, camera systems. And, uh, it was a little scary having a family and kids at 38 switching jobs, but yeah, that job allows me to be able to do some work during the winter, just little bits here and there. And then uh, we basically have moved away each summer, um, starting about the beginning of April until about the end of August. Um, I've been in Oklahoma, for example, for the last four summers. And uh, you just go put your nose to the grindstone, work six days a week, work hard. But then when I come home, like this last year, I drove home from Oklahoma on the 25th of August and not a care or worry in the world, knowing I could step right into archery hunting elk on August 30th and, and I could hunt for the whole entire season if I wanted. Um, and so this job has been a bit of a dream to me. I've gotten to do more hunting and more of the type of hunting that I would like to over the last five years while I've had this job. But at the same time, it also allows me time with my family. My old corporate job, if my kids had a school activity or something, I, it was rare I could get off to go to those. But now I kind of don't work during the time frame my kids are in school. So sporting events, activities, I can make it to all of them. I don't have to miss any of them. 
um, which is phenomenal. But then it also opens me up to be able to have time to take and introduce my kids to the hunting world when they're out of school, lets me hunt out of state. I've started applying for hunts in numerous states, um, doing some different hunts. I went to Alaska last year, which I've not ever had the opportunity to do before, um, just because of this job. So yeah, it's, this job has been a dream for me. Well, that's really encouraging. I think for people that maybe feel trapped in their corporate job, it's cushy, it's comfortable, but it's not fulfilling. I mean, there's so many people, Rusty, that are not happy with where they're at. And you would never know that if you just looked at their social media. Uh, but if you dig in on people, man, there's a lot of folks unhappy. And I, I had a guy on here just a couple weeks ago where sweet corporate job doing insurance claims, did it for seven, eight years, took uh, a $3,000 a month pay cut, went out, opened his own gym, lost, you know, left his 401k behind and his match contract, like all these great things, but he just wasn't happy. He wasn't having, you know, he wanted to take a risk and invest it himself. So Good for you. What uh, did you do? How did you set yourself up to make the jump over basically from corporate project management to I'm going to, I assume, door-to-door sales? Yep, it is. It's straight up door-to-door sales. And uh, yeah, huge change. Huge, huge change. It was it was really scary. One of the, the scariest uh, career decisions I've ever made. Um, I basically used up all my vacation, my last year working corporate instead of for hunting i used it all up to to go work with this company um on my vacation days to find out if i thought i could do the job yes uh, find out if i thought i could actually make it work and uh wife and i put our heads together and decided we were gonna we were gonna give it a try and kind of what you just mentioned with the gentleman you talked to the other day we we were willing to take a pay cut for happiness like you said our our happiness and uh quality of life, not just based on finances alone was more important to us than the money we made. And luckily things turned out great on all sides. Not only did quality of life improve as far as our happiness, uh, for me personally, the time to go hunting, but it turned out to be better financially and have made, uh, financially way better money than I did working in the corporate world. And so, yeah, overall happiness, you know, went from, from middle of the road to, to sky high. Yeah, I love it. Uh, door to door sales is not easy. Um, what's the company that you are part of, or is it your own, or what is it? It's I work for Vivint. They're uh, they're the largest uh, smart home company in the world. They're the second largest uh, residential security provider in the the country, and they're ba- they're based out of Utah, uh, out of like the Provo Orem area. If you're anybody's a basketball fan, the Vivint Smart Home Arena is where the Utah Jazz play. There you go. Um, that's that's the company I work for. Work with a lot of good people that have a lot of the same ambitions that I have. People that you know value that freedom and time off that the job gives us. But that said, we work our tails off. We we work hard while we're working. That whole mentality of work hard, play hard. Mm, that's awesome. There's a there's a dude who uh, is lives in Utah, and I don't know if he. I think it might be a different company, but same premise. He started an out. It's Alan Bolin or Bolin. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, I know Alan well. Do you? Okay, it's a different company, right? Yeah, yeah correct. Alan. Uh, Alan's worked for a couple alarm companies. Actually, he started one North Star that I know he sold, and he works for Amp Smart now. And uh, yeah, Alan, and I chat every year down at the expo, and and once in a while as well. Yeah, same same type of work. 
uh, Alan and I do. Yeah, there's a few guys in the hunting industry that do that door-to-door, you know, gig. And let's like let's pump the brakes and make sure everybody understands. It sounds seductive, but let think about it. You got to commit to six days a week. You're traveling great distances and sacrificing a lot for a large reward. And on top of that, you got to be damn good at selling. You got to be able to build rapport and be able to you know close a deal and provide great service and get those people bragging about you to their friends and build your network like it's not like a turnkey deal and <laughs> you got all your money made right then and there you got to be smart managing your money how, yeah. how was that process in your first year or two of like kind of figuring it all out yeah you're you hit it on the head Dan it's is definitely different that way right off the bat uh the first year I did this I went to Texas and I'm, I'm literally taking my family to Texas for uh you know the whole summer and, and and I miss them for part of the summer. I'm heading out and working while my kids are still in school for a month. And then the family comes out. And that part was a little tough uh, right off the bat. But my my wife's awesome. I, I couldn't have a, a better, more supportive wife for this. And uh, it is. It's a put your nose to the grindstone. There's days you wonder why you're doing it when you're knocking on doors and people are shutting them on your face. And you you definitely have to learn a skill set. And I'm, I'm a little different. A lot of the guys that you hear about that do door to door, they're young, they're in their twenties. I'm 43 years old. And so I'm the, I'm the old man that's out there knocking on doors. And I, I've tried to make that a positive in that I figure there's some people out there that are going to maybe be more apt to buy from somebody that's more their age or even older than them or more mature than maybe the the 20 something year old kid knocking on their door. I would, um, I would see way more eye to eye with somebody like your age seasoned life experience and has kids and probably has values, uh, valuables, assets that you're concerned about protecting versus yeah. a, some 20 year old kid who's got nothing and he's trying to sell me some stuff, you know? Yeah. I think that's, yeah. an, I think it's an advantage. And yeah. Then, so it's been, it's been good to me that way. I, I have, I've had no complaints from it whatsoever. I think that's awesome, man. And uh, kudos to your family for, you know, kind of figuring out how to make it work for the entire year and, and getting them down there a month later and, yeah. You know, pulling stakes and getting back home. I'm sure that's a pretty good feeling to pull into the driveway come late August after being gone for so long and knowing what, what's about to come. Yeah, it's a great feeling when you're headed home and see mountains again. When I've been out of, uh, out of the West and see those mountains again, it's a good feeling, especially uh, where I'm able to apply for more tags in other places. If I know I got a uh, pocket full of tags when I'm on my way home, I, I become a real happy camper. Well, the timing of this podcast is interesting. So we got kind of that application season coming up and that kind of lasts a long time, quite honestly. Like if you're in the game as much as I am or even more, it's a long application season. It's a lot of planning and strategy. And uh, if you're coming off a season like mine where it was good, but it wasn't great, I'm pretty determined this year to make a better go at 2020 as far as planning and having really good hunts versus just a lot of hunts, if that makes yeah, sense. And absolutely. then you also have fresh snow flying, and you're like a fourth-generation houndsman, so we got to talk about running cats. Yeah, yeah, cat runs fun. I just, uh, gosh, day before yesterday, I just caught a good tom, uh, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, my little background there, my great-grandpa, he did a bunch of uh, government trapping way back in the day, and he was – one of his jobs was to kill bears and kill lions. And so he got into chasing cats. And then my grandpa, 
and his brothers just before and just after World War II, they got really heavy into chasing cats. And uh, they ran mountain lions from, you know, clear up into the Salmon Mountains in Idaho, uh, Utah, and all around here, back when there wasn't a lot of lions in this country. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's the grandpa that lived next door to me. So I grew up with a dad and a grandpa that that was pretty commonplace for them to to run cats. And uh, so we grew up doing it. And then my brother, he uh, went to school in wildlife biology and he ended up getting a gig uh, as part of the capture crew for the Teton Cougar Project out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, that ended up being awesome because my brother-in-law, myself, my dad ended up hiring us to basically come be their capture crew. So for, you know, about a 15-year stint uh, on and off there, we're getting paid to capture mountain lions and radio collar them for this study. Good Lord. Um, That's awesome. Which is, which is awesome. And uh, so, yeah, we still do it today. I, I've been teaching my boy some hound stuff or actually tonight i'm going to pick up a new hound puppy tonight so we can start training absolutely love love chasing cats I, my crystal ball says that i might get dogs eventually that's how much i loved it i have only experienced it once and it's incredible but i'd like to know the back end like how many dogs do you have right now gosh right now i me personally I, i'm running two dogs okay um, which is unusual for a lot of houndsmen we kind of always had some community hounds growing up between my dad, my brother, my brother-in-law that we could kind of keep together. And then my, my brother, he really got hooked up doing a bunch of different studies in other places. And so he started like right now he's in Northern Idaho capturing cats, uh, for a study. And so he's got all his hounds up there. And so when he started bouncing to other places, taking the dogs, I'm like, well, I just need to pick up a, a dog or two that we can have when he's got the hounds gone. And, uh, so my brother-in-law and I, we each picked up some, some dogs, uh, started training them a few years ago as pups. And, uh, I, I personally prefer to just run two hounds, two or three tops, um, bear guys, you know, they're running a lot of dogs. Bears don't want a tree. You got to have a lot on them with hounds. Everybody's a little bit different, but I prefer to run with two or two or three dogs uh, at a maximum. And I'm assuming these are Walker hounds. Um, they're a mix. I grew up with walkers. Um, Right now, we're running a blue tick and a red tick, and the pup I'm going to pick up tonight's half walker and half blue tick. Well, I'm going to consider you a resource for down the road when I get the dust settled. And I'm <laughs> serious, I'd love to run some cats, especially out my North Idaho cabin, that whole mountain range. Like, yeah. There's not a lot of outfitters in there. There's not a lot of people running cats, and uh, they're on every trail camera I've ever put out. It's a little dangerous to run them up there. There's just a lot of wolves. I mean, a lot. Sure. And that, yeah. that's like my one hesitation is I don't want to be staring at just a head and spinal cord of my favorite family member, you know? You got to be careful. I've known guys that have had them happen. If, uh, if you're ever running hounds in the areas with wolves, yeah. Something my grandpa taught us even when we didn't have wolves here is, and I prefer to do it this way, and you really got to do it in wolf country, is follow that cat track out. Even if it was a fresh track overnight follow it out till you jump the cat and then turn on the the cat so hopefully you got a pretty short stint from where you turned your dogs loose to where they tree it not to mention it's way funner uh you oftentimes get to see the chase watch the cat run i've had them come run back past me watch them run up the opposite hill and watch my dogs work them and uh you just you're exactly right you gotta be super smart if you're in wolf country 
That makes a lot of sense. So your average day of heading out, you set the alarm, you get out there, you can't let your dogs <laughs> lo- you can't let your dogs loose, I assume, till daylight. But you said a lot of times you'll walk the track out. Like take us through your typical day yeah. of cat hunting. Yeah. So I'll I'll walk through just a couple days ago. A couple days ago I uh, went out early. I'll, d- depending on what our weather has been like, if we had a fresh snow or or not, or when the snow quit falling, I'm one of those guys. I'll I'll have my alarm set for uh, midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning. And I will get up and look outside and see if it's quit snowing. You know, if it's quit snowing at midnight, I'm going to be going and getting my stuff and I'm going to be cutting for tracks a couple of hours later. Cause I know that track I find is smoking fresh. Yeah. Um, so a couple of days ago, we, we didn't have snow. I went out and started cutting tracks about probably about three 30 to four in the morning. I happened to cut uh, Tom track probably about 6am when I cut it. And I was, I still happen to be in my truck. Sometimes you're on foot. Sometimes you're on snowmobile, four wheeler, uh, cutting these canyons. I happen to be on a road I could get with my, uh, in on my truck. So I, I continue to cut the road to make sure that cat doesn't cross the road again somewhere else. I was alone. So I happened to, to drive out and get a hold of my brother-in-law that runs with me. And we went back in and then we start cutting all the surrounding canyons around that track and try and do a circle all the way around the track if possible. I've made the mistake before of taking off on a cat and three or four miles into it, all of a sudden I cross a road and I'm wishing I'd have cut that road before I started hiking all those miles. Yeah. Uh, once you have it surrounded, like this one a couple days ago, we we made a several mile loop around it. Track never came out. So we went back and started on the track and we just did that. We were going to follow the cat all the way until we jumped it. This one, our dogs were really blowing up, and we knew we were, were getting close. And so we actually turned loose a little bit before we jumped the cat. And he, he was a smart cat. He was a good Tom. He took the dogs through some ledges and cliffs trying to lose them. And for those that have never lion hunted, and I know you have, Dan, it's, it's not necessarily always easy. <laughs> uh, those cats can go crazy places. You get a shot of adrenaline when you hear those hounds going, and you start pushing hard. And you can burn through your energy in a hurry and sometimes in not good conditions, you know, you can have a foot of snow you're tromping through, you get wet, you get cold. But yeah, in this case, I had, I had this cat in the tree by, uh, gosh, by the time we followed turn loose and everything, we had it in the, in a tree probably by about one o'clock in the afternoon. Not bad at all. Did you guys have just a hunter with you or do you guys just, just work on your dogs? Uh, we mostly work our dogs right now. I have a scenario where I, my wife has a cousin who's uh, confined to a wheelchair and has been most of his life. And I'm, I'm trying to, to help him get a, get a cat. And that was kind of the sole purpose of run this cat is going to try and get a cat into a location where we can uh, get him access from his wheelchair. Super inspiring kid. He's harvested two mule deer and an elk from his wheelchair. Wow. And uh, just an impressive guy, super, super inspiring to me. And so that was, when I'm running cats lately these days, I'm trying to run cats in country that I think we have a chance of getting him to in his wheelchair. And that's difficult for those that know what cat country's like. And this ended up not working out. We got the cat uh, where it treed in a good location for him. We actually got him in there and just a little bit before, uh, literally within like 20 seconds before he was going to pull the trigger, the cat bailed out of the tree. Mm. Um, I hurried and caught it again but it was in a location we couldn't get him on his, uh, on his wheelchair, unfortunately. But even though that's a bummer, it's going to be, 
it's going to make it even better when we do finally get him a cat. So what was interesting to me on my cat hunt was, uh, the, the Tom we were hunting was a stud and he kind of was a troublesome cat. You know, he had been killing deer in people's, you know, yards. It was over by Sandpoint, Idaho. So it's pretty North. And there, it, it was just in this area where it's mostly public land, but there's a few private pieces. Most of the neighbors knew about this cat. It had killed a little bit of livestock and they wanted it out of there. And when I, when I finally, arrived with the outfitter at the the tree we pulled up on x and we were just like slightly on a piece of property that he didn't actually have permission to shoot this cat so we tried to get a hold of the landowner and we couldn't and uh we both agreed like dude black and white and this is not black and white so he had to let the cat go to recapture yeah. it and it was crazy to me like these dogs have been barking at this thing for a couple hours and had it treed and then as soon as he tied the, all the dogs up, like the cat knew that and jumped out of the tree like 60 feet and never missed a stride and took off running. And then he let his dogs loose. Like, so do these cats just know like when the dogs are tied up, it's time to bail, to bail out or like, how does that work? Yeah, they'll, they'll get educated. I, uh, I, for example, I caught a female here a little earlier this year and I, I recognized her from markings and whatnot. I've caught her several times over the years and She's a good example. She's been caught by me and, and by other houndsmen, I'm sure, uh, ran up a tree so many times. She starts to get smart. She starts to get educated. And uh, she learns, I don't really want to be around when these guys come walking in. And when I caught her earlier this year, my dogs treat her. And when I got about 60 yards away, she saw me and she bailed. Um, <laughs> never, even had a, never even had a chance to tie the dogs up. And I, I ended up having her in five different trees just to try and catch my dogs. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, and she got tired. Cats will, they'll, they'll run full bore and that's why they run up trees. They run full bore and they are fast, but they do not have endurance. And when they get tired, they'll go up a tree. And, uh, she got tired and finally stayed in the tree and I snapped some pictures. She has some sub adult kittens with her and, mm -hmm. uh, whatnot that I caught that day as well and snapped some good pictures and walked away. But yeah, they get educated. They get smart and learn. This male I just caught the other day, yeah, he went up three different trees. Um, he's getting an education, and he's going to probably be a little tougher to catch next year. Okay, that makes sense. They definitely evolve. Well, speaking of like December and planning for 2020, um, break it down like what you're thinking for this year. Like, you know, you're building points in other states. Like, how do you kind of approach getting the best elk tags that you can in your hand and, and hunting other places like Alaska? Like, how do you balance it? What's your approach? Yeah, I, uh, I, I do exactly that. I have a handful of states that I'm putting in for points for. And as we all know, some of those states require a lot of points. And so some of those, I'm pretty much building points. Um, for example, uh, Wyoming, I know I need to probably get about at least six plus deer points, you know, to hunt the unit that I want to hunt. So like last year, I didn't even apply. I just bought the point. Uh, in fact, 2018, I did a caribou hunt. So I'm like, I don't want to draw Wyoming because that caribou hunts the same time as, as there. So I buy a point for Wyoming. Um, I've been applying for elk in Utah. I got 16 points for limited entry elk in Utah. Dang, right. you got to so be I'm, close, brother. Yeah, we're getting closer. And, I, and that's kind of the strategy. I knew I wanted to hunt caribou. So that year I just bought a point in Utah knowing I was going to go caribou hunt instead. And so, yeah, as you plan these things, I kind of got to look at what's my priority hunt. For example, last year, that caribou hunt was my priority hunt. And so I planned it. It was a do it yourself with a friend and I bought points in, 
in these other states for hunts that were at the same time. And then I have other hunts like Colorado. I, I don't worry about buying points. I love to draw, you know, a third season Colorado deer tag. Yeah. And if I can, if I can draw it great and I'll go uh, elk wise, cause I know you're an elk guy down in Idaho. I, I have never drawn a limited entry elk tag in my entire hunting career in the state of Idaho. Yeah. Um, so I'm a general season elk guy. I, I've consistently hunted general season elk since uh since i was a kid in idaho and maybe one of these days i'll draw a good tag here but we'll keep our fingers crossed so you you're not putting in for the once in a lifetime um in your write-up you said you've drawn the moose once in a lifetime have you yeah. put in for the sheep or the goat i have in past years i've put in for the goat goat uh is the next of the big three that's uh a bit more of a priority to me so i i'll go back and forth i've had years that i i get all amped up about a a goat and I'll put in for it for two or three years. And then I'll have years. I'll get all amped up about wanting to draw a limited elk tag or deer tag somewhere. And I'll put in for those. I, I drew my limited entry moose when I was 12 years old, the first year I could hunt. So I got it out of the way real quick, which was good. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a battle. This hunting stuff can get tricky sometimes because I want to hunt a, a big limited entry elk here in the state, but I'd love to draw that goat tag as well. It's a tough decision. You know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think I'm going to kind of go back to once in a lifetime tags. I have drawn that uh, mountain goat tag in Utah once in a lifetime. Uh, I had no business drawing it. It was a badass hunt. I loved it. And um, I've drawn the moose in Idaho, but I don't really want to get the sheep bug rusty. So I've been trying to like yeah. <laughs> avoiding trying to like put in for that Idaho sheep just because if I do draw it, man, like I'm going to get the bug and I don't, I just, I'm focused on elk. But anyways, yeah. I, I digress. I, I do put in for the limited entry Idaho elk and I've never drawn. I, you don't have very good odds. You know, they only yeah. have a certain percent set aside for non-residents in Idaho. And it's not a problem if they don't, it's just the max number. And if they don't draw any non-residents, there's no, that's not a big deal to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, for sure. Have you, are you a go hunt member? Um, no, I'm not. Okay. I'm not a go hunt member. Okay, so I got it pulled up, and I got your Utah limited entry with 16 points. And uh -huh. uh, I see a couple places that I would pull the trigger on where it looks like you're close to 100% to draw. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I, I get on some. I've gotten on other websites and kind of monitored those odds and stuff as well. And I'm excited that I'm starting to get close as a non-resident. And uh, and and that brings up a good point. Like I'm to the point where, like do I want to put in and, and see if I can draw this year? And then I got a buddy that he and I are potentially planning an Alaska moose hunt for this fall as well. Okay. And so I'm kind of in that, that same boat where I've got to decide if I'm going to buy a point this year in Utah and go moose hunting, or if I'm going to go ahead and apply for, for the elk in Utah and then see what happens. Yeah. That's the thing about Alaska moose is like, it's on, it's, it's up there on my bucket list. It's not top. But in order to do it right, you got to burn some precious elk time, you know, for yeah, Alaska you moose. You got to be in there in September. You do. And I imagine yeah. you guys want to do a float trip of some sort. Yeah, we're looking at one where we'd go on a, a a float where we'd go back in, set up camp. We've we've had a friend that's done the the same hunt before that we've sat and quizzed up. I I had a buddy that went with me to do do it yourself caribou last year, and that's that's what we want to do it yourself. And that's what we did there. We quizzed up some people that had done the hunt, found a way to go do it. And same thing. We, we hunted Idaho archery elk for, you know, the first week and a half of the hunt turned around and went to Alaska to hunt caribou, came back and had one week left to, 
to, to hunt elk here in Idaho. And that was tough to give up that elk time. But, uh, yeah, you start picking those rare hunts that you might only do once or twice in your life. And I guess sometimes you got to give up a little elk time. I think Alaska moose is the one exception yeah. for sure. And, uh, you ain't getting any younger brother. So yeah, maybe no. now's the time. You're right. You're right. I'm, I'd like to knock a few of those big hunts out before I'm before I'm 50 at least. So I think everybody understands when you're planning to play the game in other states, you kind of have your you got to have your backup plans, your OTCs. You kind of got to have yep. your mid range. Hey, I might draw, I might not, and then you got to kind of have your like perfect all the stars align if I draw, but really I'm just building points for the future. And you kind of got to yeah. have like a portfolio and kind of balance it out. So. Uh, it's always interesting to hear how other people do it. When it comes to working with another hunter and elk hunting, are you a guy that hunts solo? You hunt with a partner, partners, a team? How does that work? Um, I've done a lot of it. Uh, man, I, growing up, we started, I shot my first archery elk when I was 14 years old with my brother-in-law, and that's what got me hooked on archery elk. And I hunted a lot with him and a lot with my brother. We'd often have two or three of us. Um, when I was younger, but over the last probably eight, five years, I've done a lot of solo elk hunting. And maybe some of that's my job. I'm in a position where I can go hunt on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where some of my buddies can't with work. And so I've, I've really got into the solo elk hunting, which of course brings challenges as you know, but I love it. There's something I really love about the solo elk hunting. It's addicting to me. Tactics wise for solo, which is perfect that you answered it that way we'll go into that so tactics for i mean would you say you like to take advantage of calling as a solo hunter or you do other tactics like sit wallows or spot and stock or intercept what do you what do you find yourself doing most commonly yeah you bet i i'm totally open to all of it and i've done done it all i've, I've killed elk off of wallows um gosh i've killed elk out of tree stands i've bugled them in i've cow called them in i've stalked them you name it but i I find most of the time, uh, the last few years, I've really had the most success from not calling. Um, and I, I love calling. There's that rush of having them come into you. But I've really, when I'm in areas where I got good elk numbers, I love letting those elk talk to each other. And I like sneaking in and not letting them know where I'm at. Well, I got two bulls, two, two real bulls talking to each other, get the wind in my favor, play it right. And I love to sneak in on them while they're doing that. I, I've really gotten a kick out of that about the last four or five years. That is a great and difficult task at hand. I, it is. I haven't experienced this in a few years, to be honest with you, Rusty, but I used to rely on satellite bulls to make right. that tactic that you just talked about work really well for me. And that's actually how I kind of started killing bigger bulls in the beginning was getting these satellites to just pester these herd bulls. And usually it wasn't in the bedding area where they spend 80% of daylight hours. It was actually right. in transition in the mornings and evenings. Those satellites just came from wherever they come from, and they just try to like basically steal a cow or hook something. Um, and you can really take advantage of that. What do you do when you can't really find that? Like they're not – you don't have any pesty – pesky little satellites yeah. to piss off the herd bull. What do you do next? Yeah, I, I kind of go about it two ways. I do kind of what you were talking about early, like in the mornings. I will, I'm kind of more of a backpack in hunter, I guess. Let me back up to that. Yes. I like to, to pack in and just sleep where I end up that night. 
I love laying there and listening to those bulls scream in the night so that when I climb out of my bag, I know I got two bulls over here to the west and Mm -hmm. I got another bull over here to the north and kind of have that strategy going in my head um, as I'm climbing out of my bag in the morning. So I will will let those elk talk and try and sneak in on them first. If I don't got satellites or something to help me that way or they start to get quiet on me and I can't locate them, I – I try and I'll do the strategy where I try and locate the big bull, the herd bull, the one that we all struggle to get to leave his cows, the one that we all want, but we have a hard time getting. And I like to either get in as close as I can to him or from a distance. I can't tell you how many times I've just watched him in glass and I will let him go to bed. And obviously that can be tricky depending on how thick of, of country you're hunting. I love to put those elk to bed and wait until noon, one o'clock, the hottest time of the day. And I, I, I even like doing this a lot when I got a buddy with me and one of us goes in. I love to, it's tough because you got so many eyes and ears from all of his herd, but I love to get in when his whole herd is bedded within that hundred yard range. And then I will just scream at him. And we've all experienced where you're trying to call that herd bull and he bugles back at you as he's pushing his herd away (laughs) and you just end up chasing them when they're bedded like that, that bull doesn't, he can't hurt his cows away. He doesn't have any chance to, to chase them away. And he doesn't have many options other than to come and face you. And we've had that work a lot and I'll get him to come to me there. Or if I got a buddy and I think I might screw it up, or if he's going in, he might screw it up. We send one of us to their escape route. So if that guy buggers it up, the guy in the escape route often has an opportunity on the bull. That's brilliant, really. And that's, you know, not as common. Most guys will like do the shooter caller scenario. But if you have two guys, I almost like that better, Rusty. You know, I like sneaking in real tight, raise some hell. If you blow it up, escape route's covered. And then if that guy doesn't get an opportunity, well, maybe we can keep tabs on where they go and run the play again and run the play again. And you might even call in other bulls that in the, you know, they bulls hear some commotion. You'd be surprised how many bulls will get up and leave where they're at and come see what this is, what's going on here, which is absolutely, which is crazy. I've had elk. I've done that play. And I can just think of the one time that like my dad and I were almost like, I was with my dad and we were kind of feeling greedy a little bit. We were like, man, this, <laughs> this is going to work. Like we literally snuck in within about 60 yards of some North Idaho brush country. We were in so tight. And as soon as I let out that first little challenge bugle, of course, we got him to bugle with the cow call. Sure. And the herd bull just lit up and then we just hammered him right away. Just no introduction, just, hey. And all the cows jumped up. And he never said another word, and they took off running. Middle of the day, hot as hell. They just took off and ran. And we didn't have anyone covering their escape route, and uh, we just sat there baffled. We were like, what did we say? So that's yeah. happened before, but I like that tactic for solo. Now, if you are solo hunting and you are going to call these elk in, yep. like you kind of have to leverage the terrain a little bit because yeah. if you make a sound and they – hear it and you're close let's say under 100 they know the branch a tree they know the stick you're standing on they have like ultra hearing so you kind of have to almost manipulate or muffle the sound to to sound further or whatever and then move forward slightly always uh how 
I learned that over time, just the hard way, but is that something that you do as far as manipulating your sound and, and moving forward when you're calling solo? Yeah, I totally do. I'm always I'm always turning around and facing away. There's those situations when you got wind or anything else. Even We've all been there where we've even had the elk bugling across the canyon from us and you can hardly hear him because of wind or he just has his head turned the other direction and he sounds farther away. So I try and and mimic that same thing. I'm always turning my head around and bugling or cow calling, whatever I'm doing behind me um, to try and give that effect of being farther away. Cause yeah, those elk will peg you. I'm a little more, I'm a lot more aggressive now than I used to be. When I was younger, I had a lot of close calls and I'm doing air quotes here. You know, I had a lot of close calls cause I was always uh, a more conservative hunter. I was always tiptoeing and trying to be sneaky. And, you know, I've heard you mention it on the podcast, but you elk aren't quiet animals. And, uh, I've learned that, you know, I'm either moving slowly cause I don't want them to know where I'm at, but if I think they know where I'm at, I'm just going, I'm running. Sometimes I've jogged, I've walked. And as long as he's not seeing me with his eyes, you'll get away with that with elk. And I found when I'm more aggressive, I will definitely blow it. And I will screw up a lot of opportunities, but I've also found I've been more successful. I think guys will hear that and then they're going to not do this. What They're not going to follow Rusty's advice, which is pure gold, until they finally just screwed up enough times. That they're like, okay, yeah. I'm not getting shot opportunities. I'm still tiptoeing around. And I think people hear it, but until they've gone with a mentor or somebody and been like, see how aggressive I really am at moving in on elk then and... Uh, once they see that, then they can, wow, you can get away with that? And the answer is, yeah, most times you can. You really yeah. can get away with that. Um, I'm really curious, to that bivy style hunting. Are you a tent guy? Are you a bivy sack, a shelter? What are you doing for your for your gear? Gosh, I go lightweight. I, uh, I, I don't do a tent. If I get into late season, like rifle hunts or whatnot, uh, where it starts to get real cold, maybe I'll, I'll take a tent. If I do, I usually take a little uh, two-man kuyu tent. But uh, – during like the elk season, archery season, I am a sleeping bag uh, thrown down on an air mattress. I'll kick out an elk bed and just uh, put my my air mattress down, throw my bag down, and sleep right there. For fall and September, I just have a twenty degree bag. Mm-hmm. If if I know I got some real good weather, some real good cold coming in, it's like okay, maybe maybe throw a zero or I have a little liner, little bag liner for the fall. I'll sometimes throw in in case the weather changes on me and goes one way or the other. I always carry uh, just a little tarp, uh, you know, from Walmart that's strapped on the back of my back of my bag. If it storms, I just use my tripod to <laughs> make a pole in the middle and make a tent to sleep under it if I get caught in the rain. But uh, I like to go lightweight that way, just a bag and a sleeping mat. I really like the idea of being as light as possible when you're going to sleep on elk like that to me. And I, every year I kind of do an inventory of uh, how can I evolve my systems? I th- I'm sure, sure you do the same thing. So currently yeah. right now I'm in the market for a zero degree bag that I will probably, I'd rather be hot and sweaty than cold. And I'm a cold guy yep. and I got my teeth kicked in in South Dakota when it was like zero degrees at night. It just got crushed. I was in a teepee. I had a stove. I had a little buddy heater and I just uh, I'm soft is, is what it comes down to. So do you have any recommendations for a zero degree bag? Um, you know, right now I'm, I'm looking at getting a new zero degree bag and I've actually just been quizzing up all the Kafaru guys on their bag. 
There is also a Western mountaineering bag that one of my friends uh, has. We were um, doing a third season hunt in Colorado this fall, and he had that bag I was checking out, and I was quite impressed with it as well, Western mountaineering. Um, and then, yeah, I've been quizzing some of the Kafaru guys themselves about their their uh, zero degree, and they have a 20 degree, a negative 20 bag that they have as well. If If you get real cold, maybe get that negative 20, but I'm I'm in the market at looking for a new one as well. And those those are the two that I'm currently looking at. Yeah, I mean, ideally it could compress down pretty good. Obviously, like bulk yes. is like your enemy when you're doing that kind of style of hunting. But um, I'm willing to sacrifice some bulk for for staying warm. Especially love the idea of just having my bivy sack and uh-huh. only pulling that out if I feel it raining on me in the middle of the night. Not even. Yep setting it up and uh it's like you said kick out an elk bed throw your air pad down and go but uh that's that's interesting another thing that so i do all these like thinking about what do i need is what kind of truck do you run when you when you don't have to use a snowmobile and you're chasing cats and you're looking for tracks what are you driving in um i'm in a currently i'm in a 2019 toyota tundra no Um, kidding yeah yeah i'm a I'm a little different. All the guys I work with and everybody, they're all like Chevy dudes and whatnot. And I'm a, I'm a Toyota guy. I, I love my Toyota. In fact, this is the third Tundra in a row that I've owned. I get, well, trust me, I get it. I had a Tundra and now it's my wife's. I don't, I will never get it back. <laughs> you hope you won't. Yeah. She, she drives it everywhere, but, uh, I have a Tacoma and I was thinking about getting a winch on it just because I was doing some late season elk hunting last weekend and yeah, I was by myself and I kind of got way back in there and I was like, man, this is not smart. Do you have a, some sort of winch on your truck? You know, I don't on my truck. I, uh, I will usually pull when I'm going for cats, I usually pull a trailer. And and for example, this week I got a snowmobile and a four wheeler, both on my trail or on my trailer. So if I'm in low country with just a skiff of snow somewhere, I'm taking my four wheeler. And, uh, if I get up a little bit higher elevation and catch a track where, snow's a little too deep for my four-wheeler i hop on my snowmobile okay that makes sense well i i love that um let's end up with uh i know you're busy guys so i kind of want to talk lastly about like the 2020 elk season idaho specifically hunting pressure access to hunting areas all this technology and information age social media age and i just call them excuses for lack of a better term but these are obstacles you kind of have to just deal with and overcome What's been the hunting pressure situation like in your kind of the area you usually elk hunt? Yeah, there's definitely pressure. There is people, and and some of this stems back to our previous conversation. That's part of the reason I I like to uh, pack back in. I've found that in the area that I, I hunt a couple of different units, I'll bounce back and forth between different units, but in those units, I find within about a mile of any of the dirt roads, there are so many people, tons of people. Um, lots of pressure. I just learned years and years and years ago, if I'll go not just to that two mile mark, but that three mile mark, that four mile mark back in, I very seldom run into folks, especially if I'm hunting during a week, during the weekdays. This last year, that's what I did. I bivy pet sacked back in and stayed back in there. And I think of all the weeks that I hunted, Gosh, I, when I was back in deep three, four miles, I literally only saw a handful of hunters. And that was usually on a weekend, a Friday or a Saturday. 
I never saw a soul on a Monday, a Tuesday, or a Wednesday. Yeah, I think Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays are your best days to hunt. Not a lot of guys can pull that off week after week, but you know, yeah. you and I can. And um, I've literally come to not even hunt weekends in some some units in Idaho. I don't even go out in the weekends. I literally yeah. use that to go home, see the family, and I know I'm burning precious precious September time, but I'm also at the point where I I need less pressure to hunt the way I like to hunt. Yeah. And real quick, Dan, you know, if a guy will, if a guy doesn't hunt like we're talking about, he sometimes might be surprised. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've slept back in there three or four miles back and I'll see hunters, but I don't see them until 10 AM. Uh, cause they're still busy hiking in, um, in the morning if they're not starting their hike at, you know, two thirty or three in the morning, depending how many miles they're hiking in. And that's just what I've learned. I can lay there in my bag and sleep until uh, six in the morning, listening to the bulls that are bugling 500 yards from me and then get up and go hunt them. And uh, that has been a big deal uh, for me, not having that pressure just because I am willing to hike back in and sleep there. Yeah, there's two schools of thoughts there. And the one is like bouncing around, being mobile and going from spot to spot. You need a truck to do that well and just doing loops. I love that. But I'll be honest, last year, I was hunting one specific bull, and so I spent most of my time sleeping in a tent at night, listening to him bugle with all the other bulls, <laughs> and yep. there were guys hunting him too, but they were always late to the party, no matter what. Yeah. Even if they got up early, they still got to drive their truck, they got to unload their dirt bike, or they got to walk in, and by the time they get to me, they've been up for two, maybe three hours. I just slept a full eight hours plus. And yep. just had breakfast, and I'm on the trail, and I'm already trying to figure out how to get in front of these elk when these guys are just, like, arriving. So, yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Well, Rusty, I don't want to take much more of your time. So I know you have a pretty cool YouTube channel, and you have, you're on Instagram and maybe a little bit of Facebook. Can you plug that just so people can find you and follow along your journey? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I mostly do Instagram. I'm uh, RTS underscore proverbs uh 21 v19 happens to be my favorite bible verse it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman um (laughs) is where where that comes from uh it's a joke with my wife and i every fall i go you're a little contentious honey i guess i better go hunting so so yeah rts underscore proverbs 21 v19 instagram the youtube i i don't got a whole lot on youtube i just started putting some videos out there had some people uh, hitting me up to post a few out there. I posted our caribou hunt in Alaska last year out there and I've just been hammered with guys wanting to ask questions about do-it-yourself caribou. And so I've said, yeah, I'll go ahead and throw some more out there. My uh, YouTube channel I started up is uh, Vandalay Industries Outdoor Adventures. A little bit of a, a weird name. I have a, a LLC that I have that's uh, named Vandalay Industries. So if anybody's a Seinfeld fan, they'll know what that means. And then uh, a little bit, I don't spend much time on Facebook, but out on Facebook is Rusty Smith. Dude, love it. Uh, we should probably touch on that DIY caribou hunt. I think a lot of guys do have that pretty far up their bucket list, and it's super affordable. I've done it a couple times. I probably won't do it again, honestly, but I've done it twice, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, where where did you go? We went to Kotzebue, so Kotzebue, Alaska. And then flew out from there. So you're hunting in the Arctic Circle. So uh, most of those hunts there are kind of south and west of the Brooks Range. And yeah, you're so right. It's so 
affordable to do a do-it-yourself. In fact, I, I'm getting on the phone with a guy this afternoon that wants to ask questions about it. Um, if you've wanted to do it, don't put it off. It's so easy to go do. But that's where we hunted. We had we had great success. We brought a couple of big bulls um, out of there. I'm for sure going to go do it again. Probably take my boy when he gets just a little bit older and go do it again. But yeah, very, very simple to do. If anybody ever has questions about those, I am an open book to that Alaska caribou hunt and how to go about doing it if, if people need information. Yeah. And they probably should go through you because I haven't done it since I was like tw- 20 and 21 uh, um, and both times killed. Both times had epic adventures and two different types of style. One was a drop-off, like a fly-in. Actually, both were drop-offs, obviously, but one was pretty darn remote north of the brooks in that Arctic uh-huh. Circle. Yep. And that's some wild, That's where I would go again if I were. That was some wild country. But uh, I do. if I were to go caribou hunting again, I would probably want to go more mountain caribou. And get into some of that business. Yeah, mountain caribou are neat. That's uh, mine's a barren ground as well. Gosh, he, he looks more like a mountain caribou. But yeah, I'd love to go hunt another species of them. Fun at fun animals to hunt. Very different, uh, as you probably uh, figured out when you went and did it. Very different than what we're used to down here. And that's kind of the fun of it and the challenge of it as well. No doubt. Well, my son has finally f- uh, woke up from his nap and invaded my office. So <laughs> I will spare everybody. Uh, but Rusty Smith out of basically southeast idaho living the dream and uh hitting it hard in the mountains thank you for coming on man it's really good to get to know you you bet dan not a problem all right we'll stay on the line and we'll talk about the good stuff and turn the recording off sounds good thanks for listening guys awesome guys thanks for joining on that podcast rusty smith want to say thank you one more time you're a solid dude good luck on your door-to-door sales crush it I'm a little bit jealous of how much time you have off in the fall, but you definitely earn it, brother. Uh, at the time of this recording, just remember, uh, Wyoming elk application is going to be due very soon at the end of January. Arizona is coming up right after that. New Mexico will be opened up. Montana pushed their deadline back a little bit, but those four states should be on your radar. Then Utah as well. So just be on the lookout for those. Make a plan. If you're not a member of Hunt and Fool or Go Hunt, Uh, do as much research as you can you can always reach out to me i'll try to help you guys with your portfolio have a short-term mid-term and long-term plan on your hunts have a plan for your finances get out of debt have a workout program for your home garage gym work out every day in the name of better elk hunting i appreciate your guys' time and we'll catch you on the next one